Right on. And we're recording already, so. No, yeah, that's fine. I'm looking, at, you... I'm looking at your cat pictures. I'm good. That cat is a pain in my ass. <laughs> that's his job. Amazingly, it has not affected my weightlifting. Hey everybody, this is the Sausage of Science. This is Chris. Kara and I are interviewing Andrea Wiley from Indiana University on this podcast, and we forgot to say her name and introduce her, but we're going to have a nice conversation with her and play you some of a lecture that she gave at the University of Alabama in 2016. Thank you for joining us. So, Great. shall we get started? Absolutely. There's a certain kind of group of academics who will approach, you know, how does culture impact biology, and another group that'll be how does biology impact culture. And I'm kind of wondering how framing your research questions in one of those views or another might impact analysis and conclusions. They're very different questions, or at least that's how it appears to me. People have been treating them as really different questions. Mm -hmm. I think that they should both be happening simultaneously. So, you know, if you're interested in how culture affects biology, this is a straightforward, in many ways, human biology question. So how do kinship patterns affect child growth? Easy, measurable culture some way. Let's look at kinship. Are you polygamous or are you, you know, monogamous and how are your children with various measures? So that's a pretty straightforward kind of thing. Or how does socioeconomic status affect child growth? Well, gee, I wonder. People always seem so surprised when they find out that poverty <laughs> has a negative effect on health. It's like, uh, do we need to demonstrate this again and again and again? The other way around, though, is a more challenging one, right? How does biology influence culture? And I think that part of of the reason for that is is historical that people tend to think about sociobiology and then they they get all nervous because they think you're making some argument about genetic determinism or determinism in general right mm -hmm. and i think fair enough i do think that there's a way in which biology influences culture and that comes back to this interest in ethnobiocentrism and and my work on biological normalcy that is how is having particular kinds of bodies or seeing to particular kinds of bodies, have it, how does your knowledge about human biology spill out into judgments about it, about what is normal in a normative sense, like what should a body look like? So how does our experience with human biology, with biological uniformity or biological variation, affect our beliefs about human biology? And so that, I think, has not been something that human biologists have been doing. I find it fascinating. <laughs> and a way that we can bring these two things together. And, you know, the way this was initially introduced to me was in a very different way. But, you know, as an undergrad, I had Saul Katz as my kind of mentor. And he had developed this whole idea of biocultural evolution, where changes in human culture, you know, through agriculture, for example, lead to changes in biology, right? So the evolution of, or, you know, domestication of animals for milk, you know, leads to lactase persistence. But then what happens when you've got a whole population of people who can drink milk, right? Well, now there's cultural change as well. Oh, milk is great. Everyone should be drinking it. This is what people do. So I think that that's a good example. Milk really lends itself well to this, which is probably why, it's probably why I'm thinking this way. What do you think is the harm in framing lactose tolerance as the norm in an ethnobiocentric frame? Well, I think it pushes people to be drinking milk and it's making them ill. <laughs> I think there's harm there. There is then the, it's not 
shaming so much, but it, it's basically saying, okay, if you don't do this, then you're not normal. Mm -hmm. Something's wrong with you. I think, you know, if you look at the words that are used to describe people who are not lactase persistent, there's judgment there. They're normative statements. You are deficient in lactase. You are a malabsorber. You're doing this badly. You're, you're sick. It does a disservice. It, it's simply not correct. <laughs> <laughs> on one level, right, most people in the world, the, the norm, the statistical norm is to be lactase and persistent. To basically say the European bodily form is the correct one, the right one, the healthy one, is clearly biocentric or ethnobiocentric, especially if it pushes people to be consuming something that is likely to cause them distress. I really I, like the uh, the argument and the statement that you made of putting the white European on the pedestal, like this should be the model form we all aspire to. And that's just so wrong on every level. Uh, and I don't think I ever made that connection with lactase persistence or impersistence before. And that that's a really strong, powerful argument. So thank you for bringing that up. Even in the, like, in the bioanthropology textbooks, you still see in the chapters on human biological variation that most of the world's population is lactase deficient. And it's like, no, <laughs> this is not how this goes, right? The norm for our species is lactase impersistence. So Europeans and pastoralists are hyper-lactasic. We produce a lot, more than normal. That is another nice way of kind of linking back to what many cultural anthropologists and historians do where they have been able to trace these ideas about European superiority and how that played out during the colonial period and, and got reinforced during the colonial period and it still is here with us today. So it's, I, I think that this is a nice way to really make use of anthropological holism. It's almost like the, the dairy industry has created the Piltdown hoax of uh, lactose. It is a hoax in the sense that what they have been telling us, and you know, as I tell people, if you look at nutrition education materials in schools, they're all from the dairy industry. And they have perpetuated this myth that you absolutely must drink milk. Everyone must have it, an essential part of the diet. And that is simply not true. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, I think there's also a fair amount of, I mean, pressure as well put on mothers. Like your children oh, yeah. grow strong and Absolutely. big unless they feed their kids milk. That's, That's right. And then that plays into this idea, like what is a, what is a good human body? A good human body is tall, right? And robust and strong. Um, and so there's a particular kind of body that people have in mind. And so they're shaping or choosing diets with particular biological outcomes in mind, right? Or particularly biological goals. And I, I think that that's, again, an area that has been kind of underexplored by human biologists because it really confounds cause and effect too. And there's all this li literature tangential to this that, for example, you might see that breastfeeding is associated with poor nutritional status among infants or young children. But it might be that women see that their children are ill and then choose to nurse them. And now they're, they're, they're going back to breastfeeding. And so it confounds this, well, which is, which is cause and which is effect. So only if you have this kind of bi-directional appreciation can you really understand something that is extremely policy relevant and important. Just start us off with a good definition of what ethnobiocentrism is. 
I guess you can take it apart into its two components. I mean, ethnocentrism meaning, you know, the judgment of other ways of being in the world as somehow inferior or superior, right? So having judgments about other people's cultural beliefs, traditions, behaviors, etc. And then biocentrism is basically having the same kind of judgment about other people's biologies, right? So some biologies are better or worse than others. But those beliefs about other people's biologies come out of a cultural context. And so I don't think that biocentrism can really exist on its own because judgments are inherently cultural. I feel like you need to put those two things together. As a human biologist interested in human biological variation, what you discover is that there's a lot of lot written about biological variation that has judgment embedded in it. Perhaps not intentionally or explicitly, but it's definitely there. And my work is trying to expose that for what it is. Ultimately, what I'm interested in is trying to find some other ways of talking about human biological variation that don't have those kinds of judgments or differential valuations embedded in them. Uh, also in your talk, you, you discussed a disagreement that you had with uh, <laughs> Meryl Singer about the definition of biocultural anthropology. And I was wondering if you would go into that for two reasons. One, always curious how those disagreements play out. But two, also given the before election, post election, how many of us have gotten into arguments, to put it lightly, with people with differing views. And it's really hard to keep your cool and to not be snarky and get overly emotional, I guess, about it or overly improper, maybe? I'm not sure the best way to put it, but I'd love to hear how you handle that. So I was in graduate school when his article came out, I think that was in 1989, you know, basically critiquing biocultural work, critiquing evolutionary work is really not contributing anything to medical anthropology and to the solving of the world's health problems. And at the time I was waiting to go to the field and I was done with my qualifying exam. So I had some time on my hands <laughs> and I was outraged by this as someone who had taken this on as my, you know, as my career interest and to have it be dismissed using what I thought were very poor arguments and really kind of based on a kind of straw man argument about what evolutionary approaches really were was something I felt really needed to be addressed. And I was shocked actually that no one in our field had responded to this. I was like, why hasn't anyone, why is this allowed to just be there as truth? I wrote the response and was basically told by senior female colleagues that I needed to make nice to Meryl Singer. I, I wouldn't say that people told me to apologize, but it was definitely you need to be nice. And I'm like, I am, I'm a graduate student. He's a well-established senior male in medical anthropology. I found it odd that I was put in that position. At the same time, I feel like there were reasonable points to be made, not so much that were necessarily critical of evolutionary approaches, but that most of us would agree that many of the causes of health differentials stems from political economy. I mean, I, there's no doubt in my mind that that is the case, but that doesn't mean that evolutionary approaches don't have anything to offer us. People in, in human biology really did embrace a political and economic perspective in some ways. Like now people measure socioeconomic status, which seems to be some kind of like a stand-in for political economy, or they'll have some rhetoric in their talks and in their papers about 
you know, inequality and what I think is lost is the evolutionary stuff, which I think is what we have to give as human biologists. It's what makes us unique. It's what makes us different from people like Nancy Kriegers. You know, we have a different theoretical approach that I find very valuable. And I, I would like to see it brought to the fore more. I guess I, I worry that that piece has gotten a little bit lost in our rush to embrace political and economic modes of interpretation, because in fact, I don't think we do that particularly well. <laughs> it's not our, it's not how we're trained. It's not, if we want to do that, we go and we get training with Nancy Krieger and we go into public health and, and do that. If we're interested in evolutionary stuff, then that's what we're interested in and that's what we should be doing. We can think about, oh, how do these two things go together? Is it possible to bring them together? Is it possible to have them interact? And I think it definitely is. But I don't think kind of jumping on the bandwagon of, you know, what has been called the biology of poverty is, I don't think it makes use of evolutionary theory. I don't think that is necessarily the path forward for our I'm interested in your background. We'd like to hear about your experience with the HBA and, and your history in human biology. I mean, I've been a member of the HBA since I was in graduate school. I think my first meeting that I went to was in 1989. And I can't say that, you know, at that stage of my life that it was a, a wholly meaningful association for me to be a part of. I was young and very shy and I came out of a program that was in medical anthropology. I wasn't part of kind of what at that time was the kind of Penn State University of Michigan axis where a lot of human biologists were. And so I guess I did not feel like it was an immediate fit for me. But I got more involved when I, my arm was twisted into being the treasurer, the secretary treasurer, as it was at the time. And that was like in 2007. Certainly becoming the secretary treasurer suddenly dumped me right in the middle of this organization. My affection for it and my appreciation and the people who belong to it has really grown immensely over that time. Then I had a brief period of maybe a year when I wasn't anything administrative, and then I became the president-elect. You get out of the organization what you put into it, being involved in the actual organization of the association was a really useful way for me to feel like I was really part of it. Who twisted your arm and brought you in in grad school? Where were you? I, mean, I went to grad school in, at Berkeley, and I got involved initially because my early work was on high-altitude adaptation among infants, and so it was really important for me to meet people like Cynthia Bell, Jerry Haas at the time was working at high altitude, and of course all the, the Baker students had some kind of connection to that, and so this was the organization that made sense for me to become part of. Jillian Ice had been secretary treasurer and somehow before I knew it, she and Darna DeFore were, and Lynette Leidy and Gary James were all <laughs> calling me. And that's a, a role that is a real challenge. And so I think they were having some difficulty finding someone to do it. So I happen to be vulnerable at the moment.
something fairly similar. My advisor never once suggested the HBAs. It took somebody else, you know, not even involved in my committee to say, hey, why don't you go? And I think my first year going was my last year in graduate school. Mm-hmm. And after my first meetings, I was just, I was kind of like devastated. Why haven't I been doing this the entire time? Like, why did nobody tell me this was so great? One of the things that is just really lovely about the HBA is its size. You know, there was, there's long been some kind of hand wringing about, oh, our, our membership isn't growing. And many people have come around to this idea that actually this is a great size for us. You know, you want something bigger, you go to the APA, mm-hmm. right? But this is a place where the size means that you can get involved and you can know people well in the association even you know when you're pretty junior and that is a very special thing and you know the HBA has also kind of taken as one of its primary missions mentoring within the past five to ten years that has emerged as as something that we realize we do quite well and we want to do more of and in a large association that's simply not as as easy to do. I hope that you all feel like there are opportunities for mentoring within the association. Have there been any down, any downsides? I don't think so. I mean, there are certainly, you know, it's an association. And so associations, especially those run by people who have full-time jobs doing other things, go through cycles and they, sometimes they're not working perfectly. <laughs> you know, there's definitely some of that, but I think that's inherent to any kind of professional organization that is not run by professionals, right? Yeah. It's run by people who actually have other talents that they're actually being paid for. And, and people have different priorities at different times. And, and so there are always kinks to be worked out. But there has certainly been no downside in terms of my career or downside in terms of kind of the energy that it has taken to be involved. I, I, I think it's all been good. And then what do you kind of see as maybe the biggest challenges facing the HBA in the next few years? I, I think the challenge is, you know, I've watched, for example, the AP grow and get a lot of, uh, it's been able to attract a lot of student interest. It's really just burgeoning. And sometimes I wonder if the HBA risks getting kind of swamped by the APA, that people see it as kind of a stepping stone to the APA or somehow the smaller, shabbier sister to the APA. So there's a little bit of that, I think. You know, I think there is more interest now in what does my work, what does it contribute to the world beyond the academy, right? So what are its applied aspects and how can I actually use my work to affect change? I think people who might have been attracted to HBA might now have other options in terms of like public health. We need to be very clear on what our mission is and what we offer that is unique and different from both of these two other options, the AAPA and more of a public health kind of approach. Okay, do you have anything else to add? I just think that what you're doing is a great idea. I think it's a great service. It brings us, it, it makes use of current technology and media consumption. You know, these things can be very useful to students, to colleagues, you know, if you're trying to teach something or trying to demonstrate what is human biology, why is it important? I mean, I think this is an awesome project and I want to thank you both for doing it. Oh, it's our pleasure. It's a lot of work. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. It's been a lot of fun and it's, It's also a really nice way to highlight some junior people as well as some students, give them some exposure. So uh, it's been a lot of fun learning about people's work. And we just like to schmooze.
We do. Well, hey, there's that. <laughs> it's all social in the end, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. <laughs>